From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, so glad you could tune in here on this Friday, August 26, 2022, for a new episode of the program today in which I am welcoming back to the show oh, our very, very good friend, Dr. Michael Scher. And we're going to be talking today primarily about how snake bites can affect our pets. So let me tell you, it's not great. We're also going to talk about a couple other things, though, and there's so much more ahead on Animal Airwaves Live. I hope you can stay tuned because it's coming up after this news from NPR. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. I'm really happy to welcome you to the program for this Friday, August 26, 2022. And with me this afternoon on the program uh, is such a good friend of the show who has been on many times before, and it's always a pleasure to have him. Dr. Michael Scher is here with me. And let me welcome you back to the program, Dr. Scher. It's so good to see you. Thank you, Dana. It's a pleasure to be here. We are now sort of approaching the kind of, uh, I don't know, the dog days of summer, the kind of uh, the wind down as we approach fall. But as we know, fall in Florida feels a lot like summer. And uh, so we've still got several months of warm weather ahead of us before we can count on generally cool days. But even still, the thing about the days in, in Florida is that they don't really get cold enough to keep us from having plenty of snakes around and potential exposure to snakes because in warm weather or cool, many people who have pets, dogs especially, will be inclined to go out and recreate out in nature. And whether that is in city parks or whether or not that's out on nature trails in state parks or just uh, wherever one finds a nice place to go for a walk, we know that snakes are in our midst. And I don't want this show to be about bad-mouthing snakes uh, because certainly uh, we're kind of in their territory, so to speak. Uh, But nevertheless, an encounter with a snake can probably happen suddenly, and it can probably turn dangerous quickly. That is true. (laughs) So when we're talking on today's program, uh, especially about snake bites in our pets, Mm -hmm. we're going to have... A lot of helpful information, I hope, for, for listeners. But let's start a little bit with about uh, about the number of different snake species in Florida. I mean, it's got to be a couple dozen kinds of snakes that live in Florida. Well, there are a series of venomous snakes, and then there are a whole bunch of non-venomous snakes. And in the Gainesville area, uh, we worry about uh, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake, the water moccasin, the pygmy rattlesnake, and a little bit further north, you worry about the uh, timber rattlesnake. And then in a different class species or family uh, species um, altogether, you, you, you have the coral snake, which has a different type of clinical presentation. And I started thinking about this actually just recently when I've been walking a little bit more lately and I sometimes take a little 
cut through near my neighborhood that goes through some brush. Now, I have seen snakes in my own backyard, but none that I could identify as venomous snakes. But that doesn't mean that there are not venomous snakes even in residential areas. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, They camouflage themselves beautifully. And if you leave it up to the snake, they would have nothing to do with uh, human beings. And the problem arises is when the snake is threatened by either man or animal. And uh, that's when it its presence becomes known. Yes, indeed. And let's just talk about rattlesnakes in particular. I think that we all kind of operate under the belief that rattlesnakes will warn us and alert us to their presence with their shaking rattle. Is that always true? No, it's not always true. And um, when you're in an area where snakes um, live, uh, you basically have to walk with one eye aimed at the ground while with the other eye aimed straight ahead so that uh, you don't accidentally step on one that could be um, alongside you on the trail and you don't even know it. I'm going to ask you a question that I'm not sure that you know the answer to simply because it's more about the snakes and and their thinking. Uh, But you did mention that snakes would prefer to have nothing to do with us, and I, I certainly believe that that's true. But do you know if they can sense us coming better than we can sense them coming? Uh, not better, but they they do have various sensory um, organs that can pick up smell and vibration, but um, not over too great of a distance. In other words, um, you're going to be near striking distance uh, when they have it pretty much figured out. Yeah, I mean, my encounters with rattlesnakes have primarily been along the Hawthorne Trail. Now, this is a trail I know that you know very well. And, you know, I I certainly can't get uh, upset or even surprised by encountering a snake there because this really is like fairly natural environment aside from the fact that there's a, a paved trail right. it is it's effectively the woods at the north end of Payne's Prairie i mean this is this is really their territory and in those locations and i'm sure that you've had uh, an experience probably similar to this you come up uh, either on foot, but especially it can happen when you're on a bicycle and you're kind of coming around a corner or mm-hmm. you're coming up and there it is, like maybe crossing the path or it's right in the grass right. at the edge of the trail. And, you know, you can come up pretty quickly. And I can imagine that this can happen, too, when someone is out with a dog on a walk. Absolutely. My best advice is leave it alone. Yeah. If you walk around it, it will not chase you. But if you go to threaten the snake, it will defensively strike back. Right. Now, in my experience, when I see snakes out there and when I see them in my yard and and all of that, uh, the funny thing about seeing a snake in my yard, and this happens every time, is that I will be looking at something else, right? Maybe I'm looking at whether or not the something needs watering or is the bird bath empty or is the bird feeder need refilling? Mm -hmm. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see something speeding away from me that I didn't even know it was there. And, you know, fortunately it's been the snake that wanted nothing whatsoever to do with me. Exactly. But, 
you know, out even on a on a trail setting or if you're kind of walking uh, along in a maybe more forested area mm -hmm. where there's a path that's kind of designated and probably people go up and down that path every day, um, the snake maybe has uh, has access to escape, right? There's egress of some sort that it, it, can, right. mo it can move along. You know, you certainly don't want to get into a scenario in which the snake feels trapped, where it feels like it has nowhere to go. Right. That, that's why you just don't want to get near it and give it all the opportunity it needs to uh, crawl away. And so this is where we get into the behavior of some of our pets right. that, <laughs> that is something that can be beyond our control. Because you or I might see that snake and say... Yeah, I'm going to leave you alone, right. but our pets might not they have go, read the memo. They go right after it. Yeah, why it's, is why is that? Because that's the instinct of a dog. Um, they see something different, and their job is to protect the human. And uh, they might, the dog might go toward the snake just to defend its owner. In other situations the dog suddenly becomes a predator ah. and goes after the snake because it might want to eat the snake and then suddenly finds out that was a big mistake. Now, let me ask you this uh, in terms of the, the predator aspect of it. Now, yeah. I've seen dogs that on their own might not have that sort of behavior too much, but when they're together with another dog, they suddenly become like a, a, new, a new fighting force. Yeah. Is, is it... Does it ever happen that you see multiple dogs that have been exposed to snake bites because they were out together? Absolutely. In fact, we just had a situation uh, last week. Uh, it was um, one water moccasin versus uh, three dogs. The snake uh, was killed, but the snake managed to envenomate all three dogs. Yikes. Yeah. Uh yeah, so this is a scary situation, and, and here's where I will uh, I will ask you. Uh, the water moccasin has the word water in its name, uh, but is it exclusively aquatic, or is it spending some time on the land as well? Oh, it spends quite a bit of time on on the land, uh, but you'll usually uh, find that particular snake in an area that has a creek or some type of uh, water. Um, uh, body of water, whereas the eastern diamondback prefers uh, the uh, forest area, but it can also swim, surprisingly, the eastern diamondback. So uh, they could go near the water as well, but they would prefer not to. Yeah. I, let me, I will, I'll just convey another story here. And then I was recently yeah. uh, watching – I wanted to go to Wikiwachi, which as a Florida native, it might surprise people to know that I've never been to Wikiwachi. And, mm. you know, you want to go and you want to see the mermaids and, and see the beautiful springs there and so forth. And – in doing a little bit of internet kind of research ahead of my attempt at visiting, uh, which, by the way, was a failure because Wikiwatchy is very popular. And yeah. you drive down there and like even at like 10 in the morning, it's totally full and they turn you away. But suffice yeah. it to say, I had been watching uh, a little video and it's people enjoying the lovely springs there and mm -hmm. the little like path through the water where yeah. it moves along and just swimming through the water are snakes. Oh, yeah. And. You know, on I feel like, and maybe this is just a psychological thing, that I feel like on land, uh, you know, 
I got at least some sort of defense, which is uh, running away. You could run away. Yeah, you could yeah. run away. I could back up or something. Yeah. But encountering a snake in the water just seems like a uniquely vulnerable scenario. Yeah. Uh, are dogs chasing some of these snakes into the water, or are they encountering them often really just on dry ground near there? It's the dry ground encounter. Um, there are uh, Florida water snakes that are benign. And uh, they're longer and more slender compared to the thick body of the uh, water moccasin. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Now, speaking of, of benign and, and non-venomous, these, this does not mean that a snake that is non-venomous isn't going to, you know, proceed to attack if it feels threatened. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. Is, the case, is it the case that it just doesn't have the venom that is exactly. poisonous? Yeah. yeah. It can bite you and it might break the skin but it doesn't have that uh, venom apparatus uh, that uh, gets you into trouble. Yeah, okay. So when we're talking about, say, the rattlesnake or the water moccasin, you mentioned that there is another snake that's kind of in a different class, uh, the coral snake. The coral snake, yeah. And this is a snake that has sort of, is this the snake that has rings of red and yellow and black? Yes, this is the snake that uh, has that color um, um, pattern and it's uh, red on yellow, can kill a fellow that you look out for. Yeah. And what is it that puts this snake in a different category? Well, it belongs to the family known as the elapids. And that's the same family of snakes that, uh, that you have with the cobra and the green and the black mambas, which are very venomous snakes uh, on the other side of the earth. Uh, the coral snake uh, has a neurotoxin, and um, when that venom is absorbed into the bloodstream, uh, you can end up not only with just weakness of the limbs, but it'll also paralyze the muscles of breathing. And when, when we're confronted with cases uh, at the school, uh, we will find that some of them are so severely envenomated that we have to put them on a ventilator and do the breathing for them for two to three days in order to keep them alive. A lot of them will get better, mm-hmm. but um, if it goes that far, then you have to institute uh, certain life support measures. To the best of your knowledge, are any of these snakes, uh, the venomous ones that you cited, the yeah. rattlesnake and the water moccasin mm-hmm. and the coral snake, are are any of them more or less prevalent? Um, I would go so far to say that the water moccasin and the eastern diamondback rattlesnakes are uh, quite common in north central Florida. And the coral snake is actually quite common as well. But I've, I've noticed over the years that its frequency will vary. And there are probably a multitude of environmental issues that dictate that. And um, this year and last year, we've seen a high frequency rate for the coral snake situations. Mm. Um, When you, and and I don't want to get too far ahead in this segment of the program, but Mm -hmm. I want to take just a little detour uh, and cite a kind of snake that is a problem less here where we live, but certainly is notorious further south. And I wonder if there are ever sort of human slash pet encounters with 
these pythons that live in the Everglades and other sort of near wild areas in South Florida? Well, thank goodness um, that snake is happy where it's at and uh, it's not motivated to do any type of migration. But uh, they are taking over the area. So um, once they start running out of food source, they'll start to migrate. But uh, that's going to happen over several years. But um, unless there's population control, there's going to be a real problem with those snakes. Yeah, and I yeah. know that, that people in uh, the state of Florida and fish and wildlife and so forth have tried to enact measures to reduce the populations of these right. invasive species. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just thinking about, you, you I mean, you sometimes hear about instances in which alligators at the edge of ponds mm -hmm. might nab a little dog out for a walk or oh, something like won't. that. And yeah. I've and I've wondered whether or not this there's ever any instances of, of that kind of attack with some of these snakes for whom yeah, oh. a smaller dog represents probably a, a nice meal. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, there are definite encounters between the alligator and the pythons, and um, it's a heck of a battle. Uh, they're both formidable opponents, and um, if the python gets bitten, they're going to be in trouble. But if the python can wrap around the alligator, the alligator is going to suffocate. So, and and that would probably be the case with any sort of dog or other animal that a python could get a, a hold of, right? Yeah, it's basically a strangulation situation. Ugh, well, that's really yeah. terrible. Um, it is. And but as you say, the good news is that they're they're really not up here. Not that I want <laughs> right. this. Not that I want this for the Everglades because yeah, it's we, genuinely yeah. uh, an ecological disaster. Um, but uh, you know, and not to go too far afield again, but. Uh, you know, snakes and alligators are kind of reptiles together, right? So mm -hmm. uh, even up here, do we do you hear of many encounters between alligators and pets, or are those pets just not brought into the clinic because they are gone? No, we do uh, occasionally have a situation, and it's usually going to be a dog versus an alligator. And we'll even have some very heroic uh, pet owners who... Uh, once the uh, dog is snatched, the uh, person has been known to go after the alligator and punch it in the eyes and uh, just enough to let the alligator release the dog. And then the dog is brought into the school and has all kinds of injuries. Yeah. Uh, it's, and, and those can probably vary in severity based on how long the alligator has had hold of the animal. But I also understand that one of the risks with something like alligators, and I don't know if this is the case with snakes, is that an alligator's mouth is a filthy place. It's filthy and it's amazingly strong. And um, the main type of injury caused by the uh, alligator is the uh, crushing injury. Mm-hmm. Which is completely different from the snake bite, which is really like exactly. the, the snake bite. It might just feel like a, a pinch or something like that, but it's, it's the venom. So, um, you know, in terms of snake encounters, I don't imagine that a snake is going to hold on to an animal long enough for a pet owner to even intervene. But when it comes to an encounter with a snake... Yeah. Before we take a little break right here and go into our next segment... What is your advice for pet owners who see this happen? Should you make any attempt to have contact with the snake itself, even if it's just to know what to tell your veterinarian? Um, right off the 
Right off the top of my head, I would say, I would say stay safe and don't get uh, envenomated by the snake. But there are people uh, who have firearms who can uh, safely shoot the snake from a, a safe distance. But, um, of course, they have to be careful not to hit their dog. So um, usually um, it, it's best to um, uh, stand back. A snake can strike in, in one second, and it, it, it will finish the dirty deed in maybe another second after that. And so there's really no reason, no benefit for the owner to step between the two. Yeah, I mean, the places that I have encountered snakes, uh, venomous or otherwise, the, the snake makes a real fast move towards cover, which might just be brush or some other area right. where I'm not inclined to yeah. go chasing a snake. Yeah. And, and it makes me think to myself, well, if I were you know, out walking a pet with me and, the, and let us say this, that this dog had like put its nose right in this snake's face, mm-hmm. uh, which is not too difficult to imagine, that uh, you know, by the time I even hear the dog maybe make a little whelp right. or something like that, that yeah. snake is probably on its way out of town. Exactly, yeah. Se- 70% of the pit viper envenomations uh, involve the dog's uh, head. Now, the coral snake uh, takes uh, longer to bite and do the envenomation, but w- I would still advise the pet owner not to grab the snake, <laughs> and um, you just have to uh, kind of uh, preserve your own life. Of course, of course. So what can one do? I, I, feel, like I, might, I feel like I might notice a coral snake simply because it's distinctive markings, though it, it, can, it, it can mimic another right. kind of non-venomous snake, and I certainly don't want to um, uh, badmouth the snake that looks quite like the coral snake, uh, mm-hmm. but is not uh, is not harmful in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but something like, you know, a rattlesnake, I'm or a, a moccasin. I don't know that I'd be especially skilled at determining which snake, in the heat of the moment, I had I had seen. Yeah, it it doesn't make that much of a difference, thus, uh, because they both belong to the so-called pit viper family and. The effects of the venom is uh, fairly similar, although the eastern diamondback is more potent. Uh, sometimes the people will be able to use, use their iPhones and uh, take a picture if they're not panicked themselves, and um, that'll help identify the culprit. Well, sure, and that is one of the that is one of <laughs> of the uh, benefits of having a phone with us at all Absolutely. times. Now there are, there are sure. many drawbacks to that, but uh, that can be one major advantage. Well, Dr. Sherry, I think it's time we take our first break, but I do want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT FM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is our friend Dr. Michael Sherry, and we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Michael Shear. We're talking today about snake bites. And I wonder, Dr. Shear, about instances in which you have received in the clinic an animal that has been bitten by a snake that is of unknown species. 
That happens all the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah, I would say um, if we're lucky, we could have a snake identification of 50 to 60 percent of the time. And the other uh, situations, we have to go by the the clinical signs. The clinical signs. Yeah. Okay. And I imagine that this happens for a variety of reasons, though it is the case, certainly, that people who are out recreating with their pets away from their own properties really ought to be having their dogs on a leash of some sort, in which case, you know, you might have had an opportunity to see uh, what your dog was getting into. Uh, There are certainly many people who have properties that the dog is more than welcome to have kind of free run of the property and might just go out doing doggy adventures as, as a doggy does. And, you know, dogs are curious animals. And it may be the case that someone, you know, goes to call the dog in after a little while and... The dog. Yeah. Right. We have those situations and the people have to go out and look for them. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. Which is its own kind of uh, stress, though, in, you know, a lot of people, I suspect, who live out in areas in that are a bit more natural than just, you know, mm-hmm. say your average apartment complex yeah. might already be sort of aware of what some of the dangers are on their properties simply because they've lived out there and they probably encountered some wildlife on their own, even if it's something as, you know, seemingly ordinary as a raccoon or a possum or something like that. It is um, quite understandable that a snake might be one of your neighbors when you live out there. So when when you do have a case like this where Mm -hmm. a pet owner goes out and finds its animal, um, what condition are these animals usually in? Okay, um, a lot of that will depend on the dose of venom, which you never know, and then the time lapse between the actual strike and the time we see it at the hospital. Now, with the pit vipers, which I'm talking about, the water moccasin and the eastern diamondback, for instance, um, they usually um, cause their effects within the first 15 to 30 minutes. And it typifies with a sudden onset of tissue swelling, which in the case of the dog, because 70% of them are face bites, they come in with a bruising um, either on one side of the face or um, in the midline. And then over uh, a period of several minutes, it starts to spread. And then if there's a large dose of venom, besides the tissue swelling, uh, we'll, we'll find that there will be other signs of severe envenomation where the blood pressure can drop and then eventually their blood will not clot normally and uh, sometimes the red blood cells will burst. We call that hemolysis. And these are very, very typical classic signs and uh, our clinicians are very well trained uh, to detect this. Is there, is there anything better or worse about the fact that a, a dog is liable in most instances to be, to be struck in the face? Uh, is the proximity of the face to, say, the brain tissue or anything else like that have any bearing whatsoever on the severity of the effects? No. The, um, the brain will not be af- affected because it's protected by the bony skull. So it's mainly the soft tissues of the face, and 
it becomes uh, very puffy and red and purple red. And that's due to the escape of red blood cells from the blood vessels into the surrounding soft tissues as a result of the effect of the venom on the integrity of tissue structure. So this animal is going to be feeling not its best. They do not feel well. And, and a lot of that it can, can be very obvious to a pet owner, uh, though it occurs to me that you know, it could be that for some pet owners who just don't have experience with this, they might not be sure exactly what happened. Exactly. The, they'll know that something's wrong, and um, then hopefully they'll uh, uh, scoop and run, so to speak, mm-hmm. bring the dog into the emergency facility. And and when they do, they're likely to give you what information that they have. I imagine veterinarians are right. well-trained to ask particular questions oh, yeah. that will help get to the bottom of Absolutely. the cause. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what kind of questions have you asked a pet owner? Well, in a situation like a snake bite, um, I could recognize the signs pretty, pretty quickly, but I don't want to get too presumptuous, and I'll ask them when was the dog or the cat last normal and then what happened as far as did you let the animal out on the property, et cetera, et cetera. And there's usually those situations where the animal doesn't return and the people have to go out and find it, or the uh, dog or cat can actually make it back home by which time they already have um, a swollen leg or a swollen face. And uh, the people are pretty savvy um, in this part of the state. Uh, They know about snake bites for the most part, and they'll bring the dog or the cat to the emergency facility. We've uh, talked very little so far about cats, but... I, <laughs> I'm famous for having a terrible memory, but one thing I feel like I do remember from your appearances over the years on this program is that dogs and cats get bit in a different part of the body. Exactly. Good memory. <laughs> yeah. Good recall. Can, can you, I love it. Can you, can you elaborate on why? Yeah. It's because of their approach to the snake. Um, the dog does its usual uh, woof, woof, woof thing with the head extended straight out. Uh, because the mouth parts are what will attack the snake, mm-hmm. um, whereas the cat is a little bit more savvy. They're kind of cooler, you know. They um, they stand their distance, and they might um, reach out with their front leg, and then that's where they'll get uh, bitten, or they might uh, find that the snake will um, strike forward to the cat, and the cat will usually spring upward and backward, and they get bitten on the side of their body. So the uh, cat um, will usually have either a forelimb um, uh, situation or the side of its trunk. Um, They can get bitten in the face, but that's rare compared to the high incidence in the dog. Is there any situation in which the location of the snake bite has a bearing on the severity of the envenomation or the effects that are felt? 
That is a good question. And as far as the geographic locale in this part of the world of North America, I would say that there's no correlation between the severity of signs and the location of the bite. Um, now, in other parts of the world, such as South America and in certain parts of Europe where you're dealing with different species of snakes, it could be a different situation. But I won't go into that. Yeah, and, and here's yeah. a pretty far out sort of question. It is known that some people who are sort of hobbyists and, you know, dealers in reptiles and so forth will have snakes that are not native to Florida and will be therefore probably quite unusual, yeah. but maybe even snakes that are uh, have venom of greater malignancy than we are used to. Uh, I only say this because I remember being down uh, visiting with, with someone who took me to uh, a place where this fella just had a cobra in a bucket, right. which is like the yeah. worst idea. Oh, my gosh. And and I thought to myself, yeah, this guy doesn't maybe seem like he makes the best choices to begin with yeah. um, with his cobra bucket. But, but maybe, uh, you know, this cobra is going to get out. Have you ever encountered a situation in which an, a snake has come in that has been bitten or an, I'm sorry, a pet has come in that has been bitten by some sort of more exotic species. I have not had that experience with the pet animal, but it does happen um, with the uh, human being, and it's usually a person who's a collector. Now, these people, when they collect snakes, uh, some of them will use their heads, and they will acquire antivenom, specific for that snake that's on their premises. And there's all kinds of ways that people can get these things uh, legally or illegally into the country. And um, for instance, if uh, I were a, a person who's harvesting venom from various snakes and then selling it to the medical industry, um, I would make sure that the poison control, which we have a great one here in, um, in, in Florida, down in Miami, where they have a unit known as Venom 1, they, they have anti-venoms for a multitude of, of uh, venomous snakes. And the other location for anti-venom are in uh, zoos, where because of all the various species of snakes that they have, they also keep of a supply of anti-venom. And they work with the nearby hospital um, with the uh, understanding that if, if somebody does get envenomated, that either the hospital will have the anti-venom ahead of time because the people gave it to them, or the hospital will call Venom 1 and they'll helicopter um, the anti-venom uh, here in the state to anywhere in the state. Wow. Yeah, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty cool um, network of, um, 
of, of assistance for those situations. I, I mean, but but just also, I feel like Venom One uh, needs to be a, a new television series coming to CBS <laughs> every Thursday because well, that sounds like a, yeah. a really intense. Uh, you know, intense kind of uh, job, but one that is what is really necessary, right? Yeah, actually, there there used to be a cable uh, TV program known as uh, Venom ER. Okay. And uh, Dr. Sean Bush, who is a uh, acquaintance of mine, uh, was the star physician of that, <laughs> and it was very interesting. Yeah, very yeah, interesting. All right. Very. Well, I've got a lot more questions, but we're going to get to them. After the next break, I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Michael Scher, and we will be back with more of the program right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Michael Scheer. And we've been talking about snake bites this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Scheer, I want to talk a little bit about what a veterinary clinic is likely to have on hand to treat patients, animal patients that come in with a snake bite. Because you mentioned services that have access to all kinds of antivenom. But what does a veterinary clinic have available like right away? Well, I am happy to say that uh, today uh, there are more veterinarians, um, more veterinary clinics um, equipped with the life-saving antivenoms than there were several years ago, and um, they are not afraid to use them because they know that it will save lives. But uh, they also have the assurance that the College of Veterinary Medicine emergency facility is open 24 times 7. And uh, after they uh, see the patient and get things going, they can refer the patient. And oftentimes when these are very complicated cases, um, the university can do a lot of good for them. Let me ask you this. Uh, is it? Can you explain a little bit how anti-venom works? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, we've all been watching uh, Dr. Fauci on television, and everybody knows what an antibody is. It's the body's defense against the foreign protein. Well, what an antivenom is, it is an antibody against the components of snake venom. And it's uh, manufactured by taking certain types of snakes, harvesting their venom, and then injecting them, and then injecting small amounts of that venom into horses. And then over a period of weeks and months, these small doses of venom will uh, stimulate antibodies against the venom components, and then eventually the uh, the uh, horses are humanely bled, and through a sterile process, these antibodies are collected and marketed as antivenom. And uh, then we have it in a little bottle, all ready to go when the patient comes in. Okay, so let me ask, I mean, how harmful is snake venom to horses? And, and it leads to another question, which is like, are snake bites and the venom that go inside these animals uh, less severe the larger the animal? Well, 
they use micro amounts of venom and the body picks up those proteins and develops the antibodies. Um, there are situations here in Florida where horses will meet a large eastern diamondback rattlesnake and they could become severely envenomated and run into all types of problems. But when you're uh, in the manufacturing process of antivenom, uh, they take every measure to do it safely without any uh, injury to the, um, to, to the horse. And uh, this is a, um, a big industry throughout um, many parts of the world. Certainly. And I can imagine that for some folks, especially who are hearing this and thinking, oh, my gosh, these poor horses, uh, you know, it, it, yeah. it is something that people have figured out how to do this safely. And exactly. And yeah. uh, the the benefit is the saving of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, yeah. And a lot of these horses that are used for this process in North and South America are very, very well taken care of. They have pastures, and they run, and they play, and they do all kinds of things. But uh, they're used for the production of these antibodies with actually no adverse effects on their day-to-day life. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's great, and that, that they're being well taken care of exactly. is, is especially yeah. especially good. So, so it sounds like then veterinary clinics, and certainly large veterinary hospitals, will have access to some of these antivenoms. But, but when it comes to something like maybe beyond a, a rattlesnake or a, a moccasin that are sort of, uh, you know, of one category, when it comes to, say, a coral snake and its more neurotoxic kind of effects, yeah. what options do you have available there? Well, we also have antivenom uh, at the university, and because we can't uh, purchase the the coral snake antivenom that they have available for humans because of the cost restrictions, uh, we, uh, we have a special permit for importing it from one of the Caribbean countries where they will make coral snake antivenom. And we have found that it's very effective against uh, the coral snake here in Florida. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there are workarounds oh, uh, yeah. for, yeah, for yeah. everything. Yeah. Now, I don't want to go too uh, too much further afield here, but can I ask you, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't, I don't want to lump insects in with uh, reptiles because obviously they're very different, but there are venomous insects. Absolutely. Uh, um, I mean, scorpions or, or some species of spiders. Do you ever see animals come in that have maybe been uh, envenomated by something like that? Uh, Spider bites uh, here in north central Florida are very rare. Uh, The one that we do worry about most is the black and brown widow spider. And um, there is an antivenom available for that as well. They make it for people. And I think we keep uh, one vial of it available. Um, Because of its rarity, we're not going to use a lot of it. So that's the main thing with the uh, spider. As far as scorpions, uh, here in north central Florida, not so much of a problem, but there can be a, um, a, a bit of a problem down in south Florida, but not as bad as what you'll find out in Arizona, for instance. Yeah, I mean, so it occurs to me then that the location of any particular veterinary clinic is going to 
have an effect on what kind of species they need to be prepared for. Exactly. Because it yeah. could be that if, you know, if you have a veterinary clinic in India, or if you have a veterinary clinic in the desert southwest of the United States, or if you've got a veterinary clinic up in suburban Ohio, the, the different risks and threats are going to totally. be markedly different. Totally different. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, I, 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 um, I shudder to think about what kind of uh, anti-venoms they need to have on hand in, say, Australia, um, where it seems like everything is quite dangerous. Absolutely. And, and they do have the anti-venoms. They're, uh, they're an amazing country as far as their ability to be proactive with their production of uh, various types of anti-venom. As for our listeners right now and the kinds of things that they should be aware of mm -hmm. to keep themselves and their, their pets safe, what advice can we give? I, I certainly would want to uh, proceed any of this advice by just saying, hey, no, nobody is trying to give snakes a hard time here. I don't want to give anybody the impression that I, I'm down on snakes. Okay. I, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, hug and kiss a rattlesnake, but I definitely uh, <laughs> understand that their their place in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I, I just want us to be safe in the event that we have an unfortunate encounter with one. Well, the safest... The safest way to prevent a snake bite for a pet is to have the pet on a leash when it goes outside. Once they have free roaming capabilities, anything goes. So you just have to be prepared on how to treat it if it, if, if it occurs. So um, that's, as, I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, you have to prevent the encounter, and there's only one way to do that. And in terms of the timing of uh, taking an animal to a veterinary mm -hmm. clinic, obviously the sooner the better, Absolutely. but where, where do you begin to reach the danger zone? Well, it depends on the snake. Um, with the coral snake, if there's a delay of more than three to four hours, then there's been ample, ample time for the venom to be absorbed. But there's so many variables involved with this thing. Uh, I would say that um, as soon as possible, I mean, I've treated rattlesnake bites uh, that came in 24 to 36 hours after the incident, and uh, we were still able to um, save the animal. So these things do happen. I know that every case is going to be unique in its own way, but are you able to maybe offer some sort of reassurance that in, you know, X percentage of, of instances, yes. animals do recover from these bites? Yes. In fact, I just completed doing a survey of 100 consecutive uh, pit viper envenomations in dogs, and uh, our fatality rate was like um, only 5%. Wow. I mean, so yeah. I mean, that would be quite reassuring if you could tell somebody that, yeah, like 95% of the time. But uh -huh. the learning curve has been steep. I see. 30 years ago, our percentage wasn't that good. <laughs> I, I see. Well, look, I mean, it sounds yeah. like progress has been made, and it that has. in it and has. of itself yeah. is great, in that Options are available should pets encounter snakes right now in terms of antivenoms is also wonderful. And, and Michael Scher, let me just say... 
Thank you so much for coming You're back welcome. and being on the program. I it's always love I always love having you here, Thank and you. I know our listeners do too. That's My Dr. Pleasure. Michael Scheer from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. He was our first guest, and it's always great having him back here even more than a decade later. I want to say thank you to Sarah Carey and her folks for help with this program. I'm Dana Hill. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you can also join me next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM.